He's also a good friend of many years in this church. Our, our kids grew up together here. So Steve Chittenden. Thank you, Tal. Thank you. It's a privilege and honor to introduce Dr. John Wagenfeld. John and I have been working with Multiplication Network since almost the very beginning. He was employee number one. I was employee number three. We've got 24 in the United States and about 40 or 50 overseas. So our work is church planting work, uh, Bible placement work in China. You'll see a brochure. Take an idea, uh, read that, and um, don't read it when John's preaching, however. But um, John, just come on up. And John is from Michigan, a great friend of mine. Love him dearly. One of my best friends. Traveled many places all over the world with him. So thank you, John. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Thank you, Steve. Steve is a wonderful friend, and I have to say, honestly, he's one of the most generous, kindest, and hard-working people that I know. Thank you, Steve, for what you do. You have blessed millions of Chinese people with the scriptures. It is incredible. Ask him afterwards. There'll be a table set up. Multiplication Network is also thankful to this congregation, not only for your support of Steve personally as you support and encourage him, but also for your prayers and your financial gifts so that we can do the work that we do. That is planting healthy churches in over 50 countries. And uh, we started with two, 300 church planters, then 1,000, then the word kept spreading, and 2,000, and then other denominations started coming on board, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Assemblies of God, the Nazarenes, Christian Missionary Alliance, and they started using the process and establishing new congregations, and today there are over 6,000 couples that are out, nationals reaching nationals, and uh, at a fraction of the cost of what, what it would cost to send missionaries like my parents were or like uh, Angela and I were. I'm not here alone, by the way. My wife, Angela, here. She would just wave. Angela and my daughter, Serafina. We're in town because my daughter is on, her, on the path of becoming a professional ballerina and in ballet, classical ballet and contemporary dance, and we're very proud of her. Her sister does the same in Grand Rapids Ballet, and we're here enjoying a five-week intensive at the Pacific Northwest Ballet. For those of, of you who are joining us online, welcome, and uh, may the Lord also be with you there in your home, in your offices, or wherever you're uh, listening to this message. May it be a blessing to you and to your family. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for your support and for the privilege of being here. I'd like us to get right into the Word. I really appreciated the children's sermon, and I appreciated the worship leaders and the songs that you've prepared to align it all with this idea from Philippians 3.20. And I've got some good news for you, but also a challenge. The good news is that the sermon today is only one verse long. Usually that's where Presbyterians say, Amen. <laughs> the challenge is that from that one verse, you could preach five sermons. <laughs> but don't worry, we'll only do one of them today. The word of the Lord from Philippians 3.20, the book that we love, it's simply Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes there to the church in Philippi, but our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like us to do three things today. First, I'd like us to look deeply at the historical and literary context of that one text. Secondly, I'd like us to look at three key conversions that happened that make this text possible. And thirdly, to finish, I would like us to look at three implications or three conclusions for us here today. What does this verse mean when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, hey, our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await a Savior. Who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is the one that's writing this letter. Look at him uh, in his old age. He's probably in house arrest, some would say in prison. Some scholars debate whether it was in Rome or whether it was in Ephesus. Tradition usually says Rome. And he's writing this letter, one of his last letters, to the church that he so dearly loves, the church in Philippi. Many scholars say that was his favorite church. In fact, it was the church that after planting many churches in Asia Minor, it's the first one that he plants on European soil. And so it's a very special book that he writes. And even though he's in chains or at least under house arrest, we call this the book of joy because in it there are so many famous passages. I press forward, I press onward, you know that text. Uh, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Even in that circumstance where he is facing death for his faith and he's going to die as a martyr, Paul is writing this letter of joy to the church in Philippi. Now there's something you need to know about Paul. He wasn't always called by that name. Before that, he was called Saul. Before his conversion experience, people knew him as Saul, and they knew him as a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. In fact, he was willing not only to go against them, he was willing to persecute them, he was willing to stone them, and he was willing to kill them. He was zealous in his hatred of the church and everything that they represented. But one day, on the road to Damascus, and we're told this at least three times in Paul's testimony in the book of Acts, he has a conversion experience because he has an encounter with the risen Lord. He meets Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, God, through Jesus, says, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why do you persecute my disciples? Why are you persecuting the, the church? He says, why do you persecute me? Jesus so identifies with the church that he takes it personally when somebody persecutes his followers. He says, why do you persecute me? The head and the body are connected, and Jesus is the owner, the purchaser with his blood of the church. So Paul is transformed. It took him probably three days. You know, some people have a radical conversion experience, and in one moment they can point to the moment when they knew that they were now leaving the old life and starting the new life in Christ. But for others of us, it's a little different. For some of us, it's a process. 
Some would say that for Paul it was instantly on that day. Some would say no, it took three days because he went blind. And until someone pr prayed over him, it says in the New Testament, something like scales fell off his eyes. And it was at that moment that he has a new vision of what life is like. Not only can he now see physically, but he now can see through spiritual eyes. And what was for him citizenship in a very reduced definition now becomes an expansive definition of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom and a citizen of heaven. So he's sitting there and he's writing to the church in Philippi. But remember, our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now who's he writing this letter to? He is writing to the church in Philippi. That's why the, church, the, the, the book is called Philippians. Now what do we know about that city, about the receivers of the letter? What we know is that the city of Philippi was, uh, has the name from Philip of Macedon, or Philip II, who was this great uh, king in the area that today we know as Greece. And he's better known as the father of Alexander the Great. Now, Philip II and Alexander the Great, they do their thing, they name this city, and then later, 42 years before Christ, a big, huge battle takes place outside of Philippi, the Battle of Philippi. And this was between the Romans in a civil war. They had had a few centuries of the Roman Republic, and now there's the biggest civil war, one of the biggest battles that had taken place until that day, and the divided Roman Republic is coming against each other in civil war. And you might remember from history class, Anthony and Octavian are fighting against Brutus and Cassius, who had been the murderers of Julius Caesar. And so this huge battle takes place. There's actually two episodes. One's on October 3, one's on October 23 of that year, 42 BC. They battle it out, and Octavian and Anthony are the victors, and eventually Octavian will become the Caesar and becomes the first leader of what is going to be known of over a millennia of the Roman Empire. Now what happened is because the battle happened there in, in, outside of Philippi, the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, which is based in, 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 in Rome, Italy, they confer upon the city of Philippi a special privilege and a special designation that is called Ius Italicum. What does Ius Italicum mean? Ius Italicum simply means that the same benefits that people had living in the imperial city of Italy in Rome were conferred to them living in Macedonia in the city of Philippi. In fact, not only did they have many of the benefits, they also were treated as citizens of Rome. And this was a big deal and a big privilege to be a citizen of Rome. So even though they're far away, they have the same benefits as those living in Rome. So people in Philippi are proud of their Roman citizenship. Now, going back to Paul, 
He is going through Asia Minor. He had planted many churches. He's now on his second missionary journey and he's strengthening these churches and giving them some instructions of some decisions that have been made in Jerusalem. He's going around with, with Luke and with Timothy and with a band of brothers of evangelists and disciples. They're strengthening the churches, planting new churches. And then it says in Acts chapter 16, key passage with which, without which we cannot understand the present passage. So Acts 16, I'd leave it for you as homework. Acts 16 tells us that uh, Paul wanted to go up into another area of Asia, but the spirit of Jesus, that's how it says it in the text, did not allow him to do so. Instead, that night, the Spirit puts a vision in Paul. He has a dream, and he hears the man of Macedonia saying, Come over and help us! Please, come over and help us! He shares this with his band of brothers in the morning. They all confer, they talk with each other, and they agree. The Lord is telling us to go over to Macedonia. So they cross over from Asia into Europe, and they are going to establish the first church plant in on European soil in the city of Philippi. So that's a little bit about the historical and literary context, but I want to tell you now about three conversions that take place in Philippi. But before we go there, just one thing I want you to note. Many people think, oh, the Bible came down out of heaven, and here we have the Bible, and that's kind of a naive view of, of how the Bible came to us. I want you to notice that we, we had, at the, in the time of Paul, we had the Old Testament, uh, or you know, large portions of it, but we did not have the New Testament, of course, because he's still writing those. And how do those come about? It's actually that Paul is going around forming communities, communities of faith, based on the reality, Jesus is alive! Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And those disciples who had escaped from the cross, when Jesus had come to earth, he had taught us, he taught with parables, he taught with his life, he healed people, he liberated people. And, and then he goes to the cross, he forgives us of our sins, but he also conquers death through death. And then on the third day, he is risen from the dead. And the disciples who had been scared and, and fleeing all over, all of a sudden become these incredible ambassadors of faith. And they go and they, many of them give their own life because they believe that Jesus has resurrected from the death. Without resurrection, you don't have a Christian story. Can I hear a Presbyterian amen? amen. Now, Jesus is raised from the dead and it is based on that historical reality that crazy men and women like you and I, young and old, from different traditions, from different uh, uh, eth ethnic groups, from different political views, come to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they come and they form these new communities of faith. But when two or three are gathered, eventually there will be conflict. <laughs> and so... Because there's conflict, they say, should we, should we wait for the poor people who are still working in the fields and have the Lord's Supper before they arrive? How should the rich and the poor uh, deal with each other? Uh, should we eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols, but now there's the meat? Can we make hamburger out of it? Or should we not touch it because it was sacrificed to idols? These are all issues. Should we marry this way, marry that? All these issues. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? He starts writing uh, to the church in Rome, and we get Romans. He starts writing to the church in Colossians. 
Colossae, Colossians, and he writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians, and that's where we are today in three, chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, but we are waiting for a Savior who will come from heaven, but you, remember, you are a citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, so they cross over the Aegean Sea, they get to Philippi, and here's what happens there. First, they go to the river and they find a group of God-fearers. Usually Paul's strategy is to go look for a synagogue. But to be able to do that, you ha to have a synagogue in a town, you would need at least 10 uh, male heads of the household and these 10 families could then put together some humble form of synagogue. There were not enough Jews in Philippi to have a synagogue. So those who believed in God or were God-fearers and God-searchers, seekers, they would gather by the river where there was flowing water and they could praise God and pray. That's where Paul and his band of brothers go. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and it then happens that the first person to open up her heart, listen well, is a lady from Asia called Lydia of Thyatira. I've been in Thyatira, which is in present-day Turkey, so we know that that wasn't what was known as Asia Minor. So some scholars point out, isn't it interesting that he was prevented from going further into Asia, he is called over to Macedonia in Europe, but the very first person to come to faith and open her heart is a rich Asian woman, a merchant who, had, who, who deals in purple cloth. And if you know anything about purple cloth, purple has, is the color of royalty. It's a color of, of high class. It's the color of authority back in the classic times of the first century. And so this is a wealthy woman, and it says there, if you have really if believed that I have been converted to Christ, please come to my house with all your band of brothers. I will host you. Her house is large enough that she can host that whole group. That's the first convert. But a little while later, Paul continues to preach the gospel. And there is a woman whose name we do not know who is going and following, and she's got a demon inside, and she's saying, these guys are preaching to you about the God Most High. They are showing you the way that you ought to be saved. And she keeps doing this day after day. And I love this phrase in, the, in, in Acts chapter 16. Paul, the apostle, got irritated. <laughs> he got irritated, and he turns, and he finally says to the woman who he knows has a, a demon or demons inside of her as she's possessed, and says, I command you to leave her in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demons flee. The name of Christ has power. And the demon flees, and now this girl, I have to imagine, this slave girl has been liberated, and she becomes the second person that we know about whose life is transformed by the power of the gospel when she is freed from those demons. Now, what kind of demon does the text say she had? She was able to tell the future. She was a fortune teller. People like to know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. 
Will I marry so-and-so? Will I be going to that college? Will I be going to this school? Will I be rich? Uh, what's, what, am I going to die? Am I going to get sick? What, what's going to happen to me? People want to know. Even today, people go to fortune tellers. I saw some on the road somewhere here. It's a spiritual help, and people will read your palm or do different things with crystals to try to get people, and people will pay for that. This lady had some owners who were not happy that that skill that brought them money was now gone because that had come from the demons. So let me just remind you, you have this rich Asian merchant woman, high-class person with a large home is the first convert. The second one, a no-name used and abused girl, slave girl who's not named in the scripture, comes also to be liberated by the power of Christ. But there's one more I have to tell you about. It happens that those guys got angry. You want to get somebody ticked off? Mess with their income. And so these guys grab Paul and Silas out of the group. They see them as the leaders, so they take them to town, and they say to the magistrates, these guys are teaching stuff that is not from our culture. They're teaching some stuff here that goes against our customs. And so they inflame the people there, and the people get riled up because they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing, supposedly. And it says in the text, they get beat up with rods. And it says, severely. They're thrown into the jail, they're put into the innermost chambers, and their feet are put in stocks. And so here are Paul and Silas, probably bleeding and hurting and bruised. And yet it says in the text that at around midnight, they are singing songs and praising God. And then something that only God can do happens in the text. The ground starts shaking. And there's an earthquake. The doors of the prison open. The, the chains are released. And now the prisoners are free to go. The jailer is, is concerned because he knows his honor is on the line. He's been told to be the guard of these people. These, this jailer was probably an ex-Roman soldier from those battles that I talked to you about a little while later. Because when they won, all that land was divvied up by the soldiers and given to them by the leaders of Rome. And so this, this uh, ex-soldier, probably a tough law and order type guy, is now worried. He comes and he sees, and he's, he's about to take a sword and, and take his life before losing his honor. But Paul, seeing that, says, don't do anything. We're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. So the jailer comes. He gets on his knees and he says, a question that any evangelist or apostle would want to hear. What must I do to be saved? And Paul just says very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household shall be saved. The man believes because he's seen a miracle take place. Nobody's escaped. They're all there. He cleans their wounds. He feeds them. It says in the text that that very day they are baptized. He and his household come to faith. So brothers and sisters in Christ and friends who might be listening and those of you who are online, I want you to think about this for a moment about these three conversions. 
Paul was prevented from going into one place. He is called to go to this other place. He does what he needs to do to proclaim the risen Savior, a powerful God who still transforms lives today, who can heal, who can save, who can transform, who can redeem and reclaim unto himself all of his people. And the first three conversions that we have are people that you would never put together, even in the first century, and you wouldn't put them together today either. But it shows the power of the gospel that transcends any sociological analysis or any psychopolitical analysis that you would want to do. You cannot put an Asian wealthy immigrant woman and a slave girl used and abused, no name, who's been thrashed by so many people. And then our law and order Roman soldier that come to faith. And this, brothers and sisters, is the beginning of the church in Philippi. Wow! There must have been many other conversions as well. But it is these three that form the base of a new community of faith, of the new people of God, of the upside-down kingdom, right-side-up kingdom of God that does not have to go with the culture of the day or the politics of the day or the empire of the day, but rather says, we dance to a different music. We are marching to a different drum because Jesus is alive and Jesus has indeed resurrected from the dead and we are going to follow that man even if it comes at a price. So we've looked a little bit at the historical and the literary context. We've looked a little bit at three conversions that happened and seen how unusual that is. But now we need to finish this message with three conclusions that I would like us to consider for us today. What does that mean? But our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await for a savior. Now, I'm going to tread carefully because this could be controversial for a few of you, but for the most part, this is fairly well established. But sometimes it just doesn't seem that it's that commonly taught in our churches, and it is solid for Reformed or Presbyterian people especially, uh, but for all Christians and evangelical Christians. But in North America, there seems to be a deficit, let me just say it plainly, a deficit in this area that I'm going to talk about now. And later you can tell me if you agree or not, and that's okay. I'm here as a visiting pastor. <laughs> so you, you, you know that I'm on a plane real soon, and we're all good. <laughs> and this is it. What does Paul mean when he says, but we are citizens of heaven? And I loved the children's message because he set up the, the thing so well for the children. That citizenship does not begin when we get to some place called heaven. That citizenship has already begun when you have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. It's cool. I was so smiling when he was doing that because I also brought my passport. <laughs> and with this, I've been able to enter about 120 countries around the world. And every time I come back to the U.S., they let me in because one of the privileges of having U.S. citizenship is that they say, welcome home. And I am welcome home. Kind of like the song we sang, almost home. You know, I'm on that plane and I say, oh, we land in an hour. I'm almost home. You know, I'm almost home. I'll see my wife and my kids. I've got this passport that gives me the rights and privileges of American citizenship. 
But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, please listen well. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have dual citizenship. You have dual citizenship, and one of those citizenships is primary. If you leave having heard nothing else, and those brothers and sisters who are listening to us and friends online, I want to speak to you as well. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have dual citizenship. Wherever you were born or wherever you have a naturalized citizenship, as was explained today, but you also have citizenship in heaven. The scripture says that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have heavenly citizenship. And if you had to choose, there is no choice for you as a Jesus follower because in the same way that the Philippians were so proud that they were citizens of Rome, Paul is saying to them, but our citizenship, remember, is in heaven. And for and heaven, here's the other thing. This is the part that's sometimes a little controversial at a popular level. Most people think heaven is a faraway place somewhere between Jupiter and Pluto or what are they called? Is that right? Far away somewhere in, 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 in the skies, somewhere far away, rather than God's presence with us here and now. That other dimension, the spiritual dimension that we otherwise call the new creation and the kingdom of God. Now let me explain. So three conclusions. If you are in Jesus Christ, number one, you have a new identity. You are a child of God and you are now in Christ. This apostle Paul will write through so many of his letters. You are now a new creation. You are a new creature. And so you have new loyalties. When you said yes to Jesus, you have a new loyalty. You have new priorities and you have new concerns. So you have a new identity. You are in Christ. And as a person that is in Christ, your set of concerns has changed. Heaven is the place of instruction. Earth is the place of implementation. Where do we need more faith, hope, and love? Do, we need, do they need more faith, hope, and love in heaven? No. There's plenty of faith, hope, and love in heaven. It's given from heaven through us as ambassadors of Christ. Where do we need more faith, hope, and love? On earth. This is why the Lord's prayer is so important. Jesus says to his Father, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is where? In heaven. In heaven they already have it. It's on earth that we need it. So part of this new identity is to be a people of faith, of hope, and love. This might also mean for some of us that we can abstain from certain practices that the world invites us into. Like when CNN or Fox News throws you red meat to, 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 to put on your Twitter. Or my brother calls it uh, face Twitter. <laughs> there's, there's Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. And, and you want to just go against that other party or against that other person. And you're going to show them with a, with a one-liner how you can solve the problems of the world. Maybe we as Christians, instead of buying into these binaries that the world offers us so much. Come on, come on, come on. And we can say, you know what, there's a third way. I'm called to be a person of faith, hope, and love. I'm a person that's called to mission. I'm a person that's called to be a transforming agent and to wash feet 
And not to use the tools that the world wants to give me, but to use the tools of the kingdom to accomplish the work of the kingdom. One of the big problems with the evangelical church in North America today, and forgive me for being so forward, is that we fall into the politicization of the faith and we buy into being a voting block or a sociological group or a, are you for this guy or for that guy? And we just buy into it, forgetting none of them are going to be my savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord and savior and I am going to try my best to love my neighbor no matter where he or she sits. I am going to love them and wash their feet in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why the Spirit has given us power, but not power to use the tools of the, king, of, the, of the world, tools of the kingdom to do the Jesus work. Is there still an amen in the room? Second point. As citizens of heaven, we form part, not only do we have a new identity, we are part of a new community. And the evidence for that is in those three conversions that I already explained. The gospel can bring people together that sociology does not allow, that politics does not allow, that educational attainment says you can't be done, that uh, socioeconomic rules say these people should not be together. But here we can have people from different walks of life, different ethnicities, different languages, because those barriers are broken because we are a new people and a new community based on the Trinitarian Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that community is mirrored in the people of God. And he owns the whole enchilada. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of USA. He owns the whole world, and he will not give an inch to the enemy. So, number one, as citizens of heaven, we have a new identity. Number two, as citizens of heaven, we form part of a new community and maybe a Christian practice something practical that you can do this week is show hospitality to someone that the world would not expect you to have hospitality for this is a powerful weapon that we have in the arsenal of and tool bag of the kingdom show hospitality to the person who doesn't look like you who maybe speaks with an accent like I do or who doesn't have a, 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 the same socioeconomic power that you do but you show graciousness and encouragement and you not only go to do something for them, you do something with them or you actually listen to learn from them. That's the kingdom upside down. And third, final thing, as citizens of heaven, we don't only have a new identity and a new community. As citizens of heaven, we also have a new vocation. And I'd like to finish with this third point. What does it mean to have a new vocation? A new vocation means that we are invited, in fact, we are commanded to engage the world. There are three postures that you could have, just to keep it simple. On the one hand, there is an accommodation that happens for many, many evangelicals and many churches and many Christians. Accommodation means, hey, you know, we don't want to like stand out too much and we don't want to be too countercultural and we don't want to be, we want, we want to fit in, you know, we want, we want to accommodate. And so the problem that can happen here if we do it too much into the accommodation side of things is that you take a thermometer 
and you put it into the world and you take and you get a reading. You take that same thermometer and you put it into the church, the people of God, and if you're in the accommodationist side of things, it's the same reading. The church is not called to be thermometer. The church is called to be thermostat. We try to set and change the temperature. Like it's been really hot these days. I say, Steve, when we're in the car, could you like turn the air conditioning on? We'll just put a, let's change the temperature of our culture. On the other extreme are the people that feel they're so countercultural that they're escapist. So you can be accommodationist over there or you can be escapist here. This is the, the group that says, guys, it's so horrible out there. It's a dark and horrible, evil, dark world. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Never mind that hundreds of millions of people are actually doing better than 50 years ago. If you read the literature, study the science and stuff, most people around the world are doing way better than they were 50 years ago. Ask me about that after the service, and I can uh, provide you all kinds of literature that will show you that, that there are all, a lot of people are saying, what do you mean it's going worse? You should see how my grandpa lived. Uh, it's incredible on many fronts. On, I could mentioned at least 10 different variables where it's going better but this group says put on your seatbelt. let's just sing songs help the old lady cross the street give some money to missions and we're going to heaven someday it's an escapist theology that invites us to just hang in there and escape to some other place because this world is going to be destroyed and gone uh, based on misinterpretation of one or two text in the Bible where fire is not understood as a refining fire but is taken to be a destructive fire. When I understood that difference, oh what a blessing. What does that mean that this is going to suffer by fire? Fire, it can be a destructive fire but it can all, an, an annihilating fire or it can be a cleansing fire and a refining fire out of which one can pass through. Anyway, between accommodation and escapism is the one that I would like to propose to you today. We are called to engage the world. We are in the world, but we're not of the world, but we engage the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, and for the glory of the Father. We are reclaiming this world for Jesus. People always like it when I close the Bible and I close the thing, because they know it's almost done. How many would give me, I want, I want to see how many would give me two minutes. Raise your hand if you would give me two minutes. Two, four, six, eight. <laughs> that one works. I'm sure there's some of you at home that also gave me some. So, uh, Let me just finish with this. Paul, the same one that writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, is the one that calls us ambassadors. We are ambassadors. What do ambassadors do? Ambassadors represent the interests of one nation to another nation. So why are we so in a hurry to go up somewhere else to some other place, even if we call it heaven, when we have been sent as people of heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, as ambassadors of Christ into the world to engage the world with faith, hope, and love to be representatives of the kingdom here and now. Not only are we called ambassadors of Christ, citizens of heaven, uh, we are also told that we are to engage the world as those who are sent for faith, hope, and love. But Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. 
We are called to love God and to love others. It's not about going up. It's actually the movement is about going down. And I leave you with two passages. If you don't believe me, believe Isaiah in chapter 65. What an amazing chapter, Isaiah 65. Isaiah says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then he describes it as a place of peace and justice. And if you don't believe Isaiah, believe John in the last book of the Bible in Revelation 21. The canon is almost closing. That's the Bible is almost closing. And in the next to last chapter, John in his vision says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw heaven coming down. That's why Paul then says in the second part of the, uh, the passage, but our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await. It's not about you and I going to heaven. Yes, our grandmas who passed away and people who passed away are in the presence of the Lord. But we are all awaiting eagerly for the new creation. We are citizens of heaven now. We are citizens of the kingdom. And someday, someday, brothers and sisters, every tear will be wiped away. All depression and death and all its minions will be gone. And there will be only hope and love and joy in that new heaven and in that new earth. And that project began at the resurrection of Christ. And it will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back at the second coming. And I don't know the details of all that. I'm not on the planning committee. I'm on the welcoming committee. <laughs> I, welcome, I, I invite you to be with me on the welcoming committee. And in between, it's that uncomfortable time, that uncomfortable space where we are called to be citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who reminds us that we are indeed citizens of heaven now. And yes, help us to eagerly, eagerly await for you as our Savior who will consummate all things at the end of times. And we pray that you might fill us with hope and with joy in the process as we join you in your mission to the world. For we pray it in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Amen.